Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. This week on The Art of Range, we have the first of a two-part episode with some individuals from the University of Idaho who have used microbial source tracking to identify uh, various sources of fecal coliform contamination of a stream near Pocatello, Idaho. We will have present for both parts of the interview Eric Winford, Jim Sprinkle, Jane Lucas, and Alan Kolok, and they'll be introduced uh, more fully in the first episode. The second episode will be a continuation of that interview. I think that this story is a, a really interesting combination of uh, science and controversy, both science helping with a controversial problem, but also uh, some science that uh, that has has been questioned in some spheres. Controversy number one is that cattle are visible in a watershed and they make a lot of manure. So it's commonly assumed that where there is E. coli contamination in a grazed watershed or a water catchment, as John Buckhouse would like to say, uh, the E. coli must be from cows, at least the vast majority of it. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk about a, a really interesting story where some of that maybe has been solved. Uh, we have present for the interview Eric Winford, who is the Associate Director of the Idaho Rangeland Center and someone that I've known for quite a while. Uh, Dr. Jim Sprinkle, who is the Extension Beef Specialist for the University of Idaho at the Nancy Cummings Research and Extension Center. Jane Lucas, who at the time of the study was a postdoc at the U of I's Department of Soil and Water Systems, and Alan Kolok, the Director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute. I think the first thing we'll do is introduce everyone since we have more people participating in the interview than normal. Uh, and uh, as you introduce yourself, say a bit about how you came to be doing this as a uh, in your career. Uh, Eric, why don't you start? Great. Thanks, Tip. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the Associate Director of the University of Idaho Rangeland Center and I've been in this position for nearly four years now. And my background is in uh, uh, geography and natural resource management, broadly speaking, and I started focusing more on rangelands um, when we first met in Washington and Ellensburg, maybe seven years ago now, and then really came into it um, quite heavily when, uh, when I moved to Idaho and started working um, with the Rangeland Center and with Karen Launchbaugh and uh, the other faculty at the University of Idaho. And my role in this kind of organization, as I see it, is, is mainly to uh, be a catalyst between land managers and researchers at the university and extension specialists so that we can uh, do the research that uh, land managers are needing to provide uh, sound science um, and information for their management decisions. Great. Thank you. Jim? Hi, Tip. It's uh, great to be on this podcast uh, with you, and I've very much enjoyed the podcast that I listen to on some of those long drives that we in Extension have. 
Uh, I grew up on a livestock operation in southwestern Virginia and then uh, went to junior college and uh, in horsemanship stable management was a professional horse trainer for 10 years. And then I went back to school as a non-traditional student at the age of 33. And uh, I went to Brigham Young University and then Montana State University. And then I got my PhD at Texas A&M University in animal nutrition. And my research has all been involved with range livestock nutrition so I have a great love for rangelands, and uh, and I also uh, enjoy seeing animals use those uh, resources. When I uh, finished up at uh, the at T- Texas A&M, I was hired by the University of Arizona as a area extension agent in animal science, and then I had some other duties added later on, but. Uh, I spent uh, 20 years there, and I retired in 2015, and I was ready for a new challenge in life and not completely ready to retire, so I moved to the University of Idaho and uh, have been working here uh, dealing with uh, range livestock and looking at grazing behavior and and deal somewhat in rangelands as well and range monitoring and those things. And uh, uh, so this has been a very interesting career for me and have very much enjoyed it. Great. Thank you. Uh, Jane, why don't we go to you next? Great. Thank you. Uh, It's so great to be here and getting to chat with everyone. Um, I am a microbial ecologist and I kind of got into the world of research and microbial ecology as an undergrad at a small school in Minnesota. I'm from Minneapolis and really fell in love with working outside and being on the lakes there. But I actually ended up doing a bunch of work down in Costa Rica and Panama, looking at microbial communities in ant colonies down there, um, and then moved up to do my PhD at the University of Oklahoma, where I continued on um, exploring microbial communities. I kind of was fortunate that there's so many new techniques that are evolving these days in the molecular world. And so I was able to learn a lot of advanced tools um, and also get exposed to molecular ecology and its kind of importance in the world. And eventually I I moved myself up to the University of Idaho as a postdoc working in the soil and water systems group because I really love the Palouse and I love the uh, ability to work with farmers and individuals in that area and kind of understand our connection to our environment and provide the molecular perspective. So luckily, University of Idaho is a, a wonderfully collaborative institute. And because I had kind of this molecular toolkit, I was asked to join as one of the lab technicians on this project. And it was a really great opportunity to learn more about rangelands and watersheds. And I really have enjoyed getting to be part of this process. Great. Thank you. Alan? Yeah. Hi, Tip. Uh, again, thanks for ha- uh, assembling us all today to, uh, to talk to you about this project. Um, I think I can speak for everybody else on the panel. We really appreciate this. So, so we appreciate that. We appreciate your you're giving us this opportunity. I am, uh, as you've already said, I'm the director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute. I've been in that position now for 
uh, a little over four years. I came out of the University of Nebraska system where I had uh, appointments at the University of of Nebraska-Lincoln, which is the land-grant university, go Cornhuskers, the land-grant university within the state of Nebraska. I also had a position with the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So kind of like Jane, I come from a background where we were really interested in looking at public health issues through the lens of agriculture and livestock management. So kind of looking at the interdigitation between uh, agricultural practices and public health. Also relative to that, uh, we were interested in uh, using modern molecular techniques to address those type of questions. So given that introduction, I think you could see how it was a natural fit when I came here to Idaho Uh, This project that Eric uh, and Jim introduced me to was um, of real interest to me because it really hit on those those topics, the topics of rangeland, uh, cattle management, and then also potential public health concerns. And hopefully over the course of the next few minutes during this conversation, we can talk about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, This is a really diverse group, and it seems that those often produce the most effective uh, and fun teams to be part of. I'm reminded of a keynote address that Temple Grandin gave at the Society for Range Management's meeting back in uh, maybe 2015 in Sacramento. This was right after uh, the Fukushima reactor meltdown in Japan. And she was talking about different ways of thinking, different ways that uh, that people process information. And then she is a a visual thinker and makes associations between images in her head. And she was saying that uh, if there had been anybody that had been part of the design team for that reactor that was not a linear engineering style thinker, this is in the land that is, you know, characterized by the tsunami, like that's a cultural symbol. Anybody who was not a linear engineering thinker uh, would have seen in their mind's eye the water rushing in into the room that held the backup systems for this reactor because they were below sea level. And it's just crazy that nobody thought that was a concern in a place that's known for tsunamis. And I've since experienced the benefits of having diverse teams where people have different sets of knowledge, different presuppositions, different skill sets, and different ways of thinking. Uh, So I'm pretty excited to have a discussion about this. Uh, I saw the article on the Idaho Rangelands Center website, which I probably got in an email describing this uh, conflict in Mink Creek in Idaho near Pocatello, uh, where there were uh, a lot of, it's a classical multiple use scenario. And also a classic situation where you have some surface water impairment for fecal coliforms. Uh, so can somebody give a little bit more of the background story of what was going on that led this group to try to figure out uh, who's pooping in the forest and why anybody would care? Maybe I'll start off, Tip. This is Jim Sprinkle because... I was probably the first one contacted about this. Uh, 
the DEQ did their uh, water sampling in 2017, and they found the exceedances of the safe level. That's, uh, I think, 126, uh, what is it, parts, fecal parts per... It used to be colony-forming units, but I think I saw in the paper a different metric now. Yeah, it's a... Most probable number per 100 yeah, mils. most probable number of E. coli organisms per 100 mil. And so they had uh, uh, exceedances on this watershed. And so immediately, as you had mentioned previously in your introduction is that it was pointed to livestock, and there were livestock present and grazed that watershed. But there's also a, a high number of uh, recreation days, because this is very close to Pocatello, and it's very easy for people to access it and recreate there. And so I had uh, a permittee on the forest contact me, as well as... Um, a Forest Service employee, and uh, they asked for my input on this. And so I I provided some input. I did some literature search and tried to see what had been found in other areas. And so when I looked at some of the studies in British Columbia and also in California, then it uh, raised the question, well, really, are livestock the major contributor? And so I shared with both the Forest Service and with the permittee that, you know, we really ought to look at what the main source is. And so we um, we went about a year. And so in September of 2018, the Forest Service, uh, Rob Mickelson, he convened a meeting of the permittees on that uh, grazing Association at Mink Creek and the City of Pocatello, uh, Department of Environmental Quality, and uh, and Forest Service employees, and then myself and Eric Winford from a Rangeland Center. And by this time, Eric and I had been communicating, and and we had shared some insights that we had found uh, in looking over some of the studies that had been done. And so when uh, this topic was introduced at that meeting, then uh, I made the suggestion, well, perhaps we should find out who the major contributors are to the problem, and we could probably use some DNA technology to assist us. And so there was some pushback on that from uh, some of the folks that, well, they wondered if it's even possible. And then Eric Winford had been in communication with uh, folks, I uh, assume Alan, and uh, he thought that uh, the University of Idaho could provide some expertise with this. And so uh, we uh, we had to find money to do this, so we spent... Uh, some time doing that. We made four attempts and we finally got the $25,000 we needed to do the study from Region 4 of the Forest Service. And 
So we're grateful for that. And then, you know, just to kind of wrap up my intro to this is I think we uh, we have a lot of appreciation for the way the Forest Service approached this. They did just, just didn't use a regulatory hammer and just said, well, we agree, livestock are the problem. They wanted to de- discover the answers and uh, then work with management and try to look at what could be done. So with that, I think uh, maybe Eric would have some things he'd want to add to this. A great intro, Jim. Um, the, what I would add a little bit is is just to think about the how the, the, this is really a collaborative project, and it's a, a perfect fit for what the Rangeland Center and what Extension and what Idaho University of Idaho is trying to do is just to really give information to managers so that they can make their management decisions. And as Jim mentioned, we we came out to um, that meeting in September 2018 with uh, ranchers and DEQ and the city of Pocatello and the Forest Service and really just talked about what the issues were. We had a lot of great discussions about different ideas of where the E. coli were coming from. But it was clear that there wasn't a consensus and that the Forest Service didn't have did it feel like it knew enough about the source of the E. coli to really recommend an appropriate practice to reduce the levels of the E. coli? Before the, uh, the meeting, I had reached out to Alan Collock, who, who um, I had known for about a year at that point, and, and discussed how we could maybe provide some information. And so he was the one that suggested microbial source tracking as a as a a tool that could help us understand the source of the E. coli bacteria. Yeah, that is a really interesting introduction. Uh, there's a couple uh, asides that I'd like to pursue for just a minute before we get back on the trail of that story. Uh, one of them is that I suspect a lot of people who uh, may be listening don't know a lot about the regulatory framework here, both who's responsible and also uh, what the water quality regulations look like for uh, what I would call wildland streams. Uh, the clean net, and I only, I feel like I only barely have a handle on this, and I've been working with it quite a bit over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, so the first question is the Clean Water Act is primarily administered by the, by the, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, but they delegate the authority within various states for the for enforcement of the Clean Water Act uh, to state agencies sometimes. And in Washington state, that delegated authority goes to the Department of Ecology. Uh, I thought I understood that the EPA still retained some of their authority in, in Idaho, but the Department of Environmental Quality is the one who's mostly doing this testing and enforcement. Is that correct? Maybe it's a question for Alan. Yeah, that that is correct. The DEQ is uh, the primary um, purveyor of that information in Idaho. Yeah. Okay, and with regard to water quality regulations, uh, E. coli, as I understand it, and fecal coliforms in general, are mostly used as an indicator for the presence 
a fecal material, which which might have other pathogens associated with it, because the E. coli is usually benign in terms of human health, with, with the exception of the notorious ones like um, was it O one five seven H seven. But what's the, those bacteria are being used as an indicator for the potential presence of stuff that can cause dangerous infections like Cryptosporidia and Giardia, Salmonella, Campylobacter. Uh, so, what are the how do the regulations work for wildland streams when they test? What numbers are they looking for, and and what levels are bad? And are there different levels of bacteria that are acceptable for different kinds of surface water? Jim, you addressed that earlier on uh, relative to the numbers, and I don't have the our manuscript in front of us. So could you take that relative to the regulatory numbers that you were talking about before? Well, uh, so the 126 most probable number of E. coli per 100 mil is the uh, trigger uh, for the regulatory limits. And then there's a secondary limit. Alan, is that it's 500 and something. What it? What is that exactly? That's 576 organisms per milliliter. That's That would be the trigger, the one-time trigger for additional monitoring. And then the 126 MPM per 100 milliliter is the regulatory standard. And that would be the standard for both primary contact streams, for streams that you would swim in, and secondary contact streams. So streams that you would just wade in or maybe fish in. Uh, Mint Creek is a secondary contact stream for the for IDEQ. And and tip tip as you were talking about earlier on when you you initiated this part of the conversation, all of the regulation is based upon public health concerns. So the reason why the number this most probable number um, changes as um, both Eric and Jim uh, just elucidated, the reason it changes is how close uh, the exposure is to the person. So for example, if you're drinking the water, not that you would drink Mink Creek water, but if you were drinking municipal water, then the acceptable standard is zero coliforms uh, counts per 100 mils. If you're, as uh, Eric said, if you're swimming in it, then you have another standard, which is higher because your exposure is, is less. And then if you're wading in it, it's even higher because your exposure is even less. So it's all based upon relative risk, based upon uh, public health concerns. Right. Rather than ecological function. Uh, exactly. So that a little bit of E. coli, or maybe even you know 500 CFUs or 500 MPN, uh, wouldn't necessarily be an indicator of ecological dysfunction or a, an impaired riparian area. It means that there are living things in the water uh, or near the water that are leaving stuff in the water. I want to mention uh, just before we move on from here, uh, we had Dr. Ken Tate from UC Davis up here a few years ago to do some training with uh, conservation districts and agency range cons and our uh, regulatory community, mostly from the Department of Ecology. And one of the things that he was pointing out uh, were the, the, the gigantic numbers of 
of microorganisms that are being shed by most warm-blooded organisms all the time. And, and the numbers are absolutely gigantic. So the fact that we can test a water body and find you know, something in the ballpark of 126 NPM per 100 milliliters uh, is, is really, really fascinating. It means that there's a whole lot going on at the microbial level. There's all these interactions uh, going on that are uh, that are making it such that there aren't numbers in the millions. The numbers are rather usually in the hundreds. And uh, this would be maybe a fun question for Jane later because I suspect she knows way more about this than I do. Uh, but he pointed out that the main source of mortality for those microorganisms is predation by other microorganisms rather than, say, exposure to sunlight that just makes them die. Uh, but that these organisms are feeding on each other and kind of managing the population uh, so that it, it doesn't we, – we don't have huge, huge numbers of fecal coliforms running around in the streams. I think we can go back to the story now and then maybe uh, that'll be a conversation we can – try to remember to have later once Jane comes on. Uh, I think one of my next questions was, why does it matter what is the source of E. coli? If, if there's impairment, meaning that uh, what's being tested in the stream is consistently above that standard for primary contact waters, uh, why does it matter where the E. coli is coming from? It may seem like an obvious question, but I think it's worth saying out loud. Yeah, and I, I, this is Alan again, and I'd, I'd be happy to address that. And I, I and just an, at first blush, I'd like to talk about that relative to uh, in in from two perspectives. The first perspective again is getting back to the public health perspective, and that is as you tip already mentioned, uh, uh, there are very serious public health concerns relative to drinking water. So we're we're not really talking about Mink Creek now, but relative to drinking water. There are very serious public health concerns relative to the transmission of pathogenic organisms from humans through the wastewater stream into other humans. If you were to go back 100 years, back to the early 1900s, the of the top five sources of mortality, both in the United States and worldwide, two on that list would be cholera and typhoid. Now, those are transmitted exactly as what we were just talking about, which is you have a patient that has the disease. They have an effluent stream. They have their wastes. Someone downstream, unfortunately, drinks water that was contaminated by those wastes and picks up the disease. So it's really important if there's human effluent or human coliforms, that's a huge public health signal. Cattle, obviously, coliforms from cattle aren't going to be anywhere near the public health concern relative to humans that human waste would be. So that's, that's number one. The second part of it, and much more germane to our conversation today, um, although I still think the public health uh, point should not be um, glossed over, but relative to, to today, uh, if we're going to remediate a stream, to, so to get it below uh, exceedance. So it, it um, meets regulatory standards for either a state or the U.S. EPA, a state agency or the EPA. 
if we're going to do that, we have to know where they're coming from. Uh, because at, at, in Ming Creek, as a perfect example, we didn't know whether they were coming from the human source or from the cattle source. And you can imagine if you're going to remediate that stream, remediation based upon a human source would be fundamentally different than remediation based upon a cattle source. So rather than go out and spend a whole bunch of money fencing off the stream so the cattle can't access it or taking out privies that that humans use so that humans can't you know, directly contribute or do whatever else, we need to know first who the culprit is, right? Where are these uh, bacteria coming from? And fortunately, with uh, source tracking, we can address that question, which is exactly what we did. So you're saying that traditional sampling methods are just testing for the presence of a particular species of bacteria, and that in and of itself does not say anything about the source. It, it both is, um, and Jane may be able to elucidate here a, a little bit more clearly than, than I can, but um, when we're doing coliform testing, coliforms are an aggregate of many different uh, species of bacteria that are all within the coliform family, if you will. Uh, and we don't know if we're doing just standard counts, these most probable numbers. We don't know who, what intestine those bacteria are from. Are they from the intestine of a cow? Are they from an intestine of a coyote? Are they from an, uh, uh, the intestine of a great horned owl? Or are they from the intestine of a human? We don't know. We just know that they're coliform bacteria. So the, the source tracking allows us to differentiate from one species to the next relative to the, the warm-blooded animal that those, uh, that those bacteria were residing in the intestines of prior before they uh, got to the stream. Yeah, I suspect that most of you are aware of the significance of this, but but again, I'm reminded of some uh, some data I saw from a survey that UC Davis did some time ago. I think Leslie Rocher was involved in uh, authoring the survey, and all this was published. But they were asking, they were essentially asking ranchers, what are some of the things that that keep you awake at night? Problems or conflicts, you know, within the world of your business that that feel like they're existential threats, meaning if it goes wrong, it could be the end of your business and your livelihood. And one of the things that topped that list, and I said that certainly would be the case if a similar survey was run in the Northwest, uh, was was environmental regulations. Uh, because there's some real teeth in some of these. And uh, e either, either in terms of uh, costs for management actions imposed on landowners and ranchers that would not be were it not you know for this um, for this violation of environmental laws or or just the the loss of say a uh, a permitted or leased range area because of real or perceived uh, environmental harms uh, so I do think this is a really big deal. And at least in Washington state, there's been an awful lot of talk and controversy and litigation over, uh, over livestock being the assumed primary contributor in nearly every single situation where there is uh, fecal contamination of a water body. Uh, so I think, I think what we're talking about 
is a, a pretty big deal. And I think this microbial source tracking has the potential to really help uh, solve some of those problems. Because if a leaking septic system or a whole watershed full of leaking septic systems is the culprit, but what is most visible on the, the land surface are livestock, uh, livestock are almost always uh, targeted, I think partly because it's an easier target. It's easier to push ranchers around than it is a group of homeowners. And uh, I'm pretty excited about hearing that microbial source tracking may have matured enough that it could be pretty useful. Uh, so I would like to ask, you know, from from your respective views inside your geographic area and, and social sphere, what what um, what are the potential regulatory actions that can be taken against livestock producers or landowners in situations where uh, livestock are suspected of being um, a, a persistent source of fecal coliforms that cause exceedance of those standards over a long period of time? Tip, this is this is Alan Kolak again, and I'd just like to, uh, before we get to that question, which I think is a really great one, I'd, I'd like to just uh, uh, embellish upon what you just said, because it, it's interesting because uh, it has a lot of similarities to crime. So, and what I mean by that is imagine that you're in a neighborhood that you've never been in before, and um, and somebody steals your wallet, right? Now, when you somebody steals your wallet, you may think to yourself, okay, it's someone who lives in this neighborhood. So in a way, what you're doing is your neighborhood profiling, right? You're saying, I'm in a neighborhood that I don't know, and that there's someone in this neighborhood that stole my wallet. That's kind of what you just said, where, you know, if you're in, an, in a um, cattle-intensive grazing area, and there is a regulatory violation, then people are going to look at the cattle and say, hey, we're in the neighborhood of cattle grazing. It's the cattle, right? I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's profiling. And that's a problem. Now, what the beauty, and again, this, this is true for human crime as well as environmental regulation, the beauty is using microbial source tracking whether you're tracking the DNA of a crime suspect or whether you're tracking the DNA of a species of animal in the field, it allows you to say, okay, someone in this neighborhood stole my wallet, but is it Jim Smith? Well, let's take a DNA sample from, G from Jim Smith and nope, he's innocent. He didn't do it. And right, whether we watch Jerry Springer and, you know, is this child yours or not, we see this in crime all the time, right? And we're very accustomed to dealing with that. I mean, we're very, you know, we just accept that um, as, as science doing its job. Well, science can do the same job relative to this agricultural or um, livestock-oriented input, right? It's not that we're a priori saying that it's the cattle. In, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. What we're saying is, Let's get away from species profiling and let's look molecularly for the um, perpetrator, right? The species perpetrator that's primarily involved. And like in Mink Creek, sometimes that perpetrator may be us. 
human beings, homo sapiens. And that's fine because that's what we need to find out. Yeah, and I'd like to clarify, maybe this is a question for Jane. Uh, what I think I heard you saying earlier was that there's a much greater likelihood of having the dangerous pathogenic microorganisms associated with human fecal material than livestock. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I, I'd be happy to jump in. I think, yes, if, you, if your model is what's more dangerous to humans, then probably uh, human contamination will be because, you know, it makes sense that it's what might stuff. affect us is going <laughs> to also affect other people. So that's why it's more dangerous. Um, and just to give kind of a brief overview of why this is a great technique and why we can kind of become clear who the potential perpetrator or source of this contamination is, is that I think we're all very familiar now with this idea that we have a really vibrant gut microbiome. And what's really interesting is that a human microbiome versus a cow versus a dog or any type of animal has some similarities. There are certain genera of bacteria that we share. But what's been really interesting is that over time, these different types of bacteria have become specialized to a cow gut or they become specialized to a human's digestive system. And so what's really nice is I don't need to go and take a DNA sample of every single cow on someone's rangeland. I can just look at the DNA in these um, coliforms and I can pick up some of the specific DNA that I know, okay, well, this bacteria could only exist in a cow gut. It's just the only place where it's, it's primed to live. Um, or it only exists in human systems. And so it's really nice because instead of having even more intensively, like with human crime, having to know the specific DNA of your suspect, here we don't even really need to know the DNA of our specific suspects because our, you know, the gut system is highly specialized for different um, organisms. Yeah, that's a good segue. So what is the, what does that procedure look like of identifying what, maybe what class of animals, uh, is responsible for a particular, um, set of bacteria? Yeah. So there's a lot of steps to it. And, you know, the first thing is to go out into the field and actually sample the coliform and, get that back to the lab. And um, I wasn't part of that particular component, but I think Eric or Jim might be able to tell you, it can sometimes be a little bit more of a effort because you have to hopefully get that sample cold and keep it preserved. Because if you uh, keep it in a warm, cozy environment, that bacteria is going to start to change. And we want to just kind of take it out of the water and freeze it in time so that we can quickly um, look at what was there in the field. And then we bring it back to the lab and we do these kind of fancy techniques where we break open all of the cells to allow the DNA to be kind of accessible. And then what's been really great is, you know, this is really an example of how science has built on lots of other people's work, but people have gone through and found, oh, this specific gene target is what's present in cattle and this is present in humans and this is present in cows and or dogs and wolves. So we can use an advanced technique called qPCR or quantitative polymerase chain reaction that actually replicates the DNA, but it only replicates our targets. And so if we put it on a big machine and it comes up positive, that means that in our DNA sample, 
our target gene was present and therefore a cattle was the contaminant or therefore a human was the, the contaminant. And what are the various kinds of animals that you could get that answer for? For example, in the study, you know, you, you, you have some that register as human and some that register as canine and bovine, and then there's other unknown. Uh, is it the case sort of like, uh, what is it, Ancestry.com, you know, where the, over time the, the DNA pool gets bigger so that there are more and more matches over time? Uh, what does that look like with with this? And, and for what classes of animal do we not have an answer? That's a really good question. So with this specific technique that we're using, we pre-chose the potential uh, sources. So we chose that, you know, we think cattle might be a source. We think humans might be a source. So we chose those specific targets. Now there's another kind of similar related technique where we could have just sequenced all of the DNA and looked for what was present. And um, that you kind of the we're only limited by whether or not somebody has studied, studied it before. So we could have potentially picked up a fox. We could have picked up a wolf, a, you know, bears. There's tons and tons of information out there. And uh, I actually do a lot of this type of technique with insects. So I could tell you all these different types of insects, not so much fecal contamination of them, but just whether or not they're present. Um, so it's kind of the opportunities are limitless and we're only limited by whether or not somebody has done it before. And so, uh, you know, we focused on cattle and humans and some other potential, um, in indicators for this study. Uh, you know, it would be unlikely that we'd have elephant contamination. So we chose not to include that in this study, but technically we could have if we wanted to. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.